Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's Friday night and I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Michael, I'm extraordinarily well. I'm a little bit orange. Uh, we have a little bit of an orange room here at Navarra Towers. <laughs> I don't mind. It's better than being washed out in the winter. <laughs> are you calling me washed out? Uh, we are going to be talking about Dominic Raab resigning. Um, Extinction Rebellion's big one. Um, their four-day protest in London has started. And Elon Musk's rocket blowing up. Was it a successful failure, as we're being told? Um, as ever, we want to know your thoughts, your theories. Are you going to be going to the big one this weekend? Are you glad that Extinction Rebellion have, have sort of embraced their softer side? Tell us on the hashtag Navarra Live. Um, let's go straight to our first story. Dominic Raab has resigned as both Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister. The decision was made after an official investigation into his behaviour upheld two allegations of bullying. Um, this is the description of one of those incidents in the report. It's by Adam Tolley KC. Um, so, um, Tolley writes... As part of the process towards an implementation of his management choice, he acted in a way which was intimidating in the sense of unreasonably and persistently aggressive in the context of a workplace meeting. His conduct also involved an abuse or misuse of power in a way that undermines or humiliates. In particular, he went beyond what was reasonably necessary in order to give effect to his decision and introduced a punitive element his, con his conduct was bound to be experienced as undermining or humiliating by the affected individual, and it was so experienced. I infer that, de that the Deputy Prime Minister must have been aware of this effect. At the very least, he ought reasonably to have been so aware. All rather technocratic um, language. That's an internal government report. That's what they're like. Um, Rob had publicly stated, though, that he would resign if bullying complaints were upheld, and he has done so. However, um, he hasn't done so without making some complaints of his own. After releasing a resignation letter, he penned an opinion piece in The Telegraph. So it has this headline, The people of Britain will pay the price for this Kafka-esque saga. He says bullying inquiry sets a precedent for officials to target ministers and will paralyze government. Now, in the article, he had lots of complaints about how the investigation had been carried out, and he concluded like this. This precedent sets the playbook for a small number of officials to target ministers who negotiate robustly on behalf of the country, pursue bold reforms, and persevere in holding civil servants to account. If that is now the threshold for bullying in government, it is the people of this country who will pay the price. Um, Dominic Raab reiterated that message in an interview this afternoon with the BBC's Chris Mason. Do you accept, though, that your behaviour in certain instances has not been acceptable? Look, uh, I'm sure I've made mistakes over four and a half years, but the question was whether any of this amounted to bullying. And I strongly believe if the threshold for bullying is so lowered that uh, uh, picking people up on bad work, uh, straightening out a negotiation where breach of a cabinet set mandate has been taken place, changing teams so we get the very best out of negotiations, so we deliver on victims' parole, uh, human rights reform. If we can't do those things, then ultimately it will be the public that pay the price. Rob also spoke to GB News where he hinted at a coordinated campaign to remove him. Well, there was certainly some coordination. One of the complaints was struck out because they'd written it together. Um, look, put it this way. Uh, these claims, some of them were four and a half years old. Uh, another one was two and a half years old. The vast majority were eight months old. They were all submitted on the same day. 
um, uh, uh, which is the 15th of November. I think a few came just a little bit later. That can't be coincidental. Um, but I only know what I know. Um, and I also know that I was warned by a very senior member uh, of the government, a senior civil servant, that there are increasingly activist uh, civil servants uh, mobilised by the FDA union uh, who are looking to target ministers. Um, but all I know is that I think the bar has been so lowered now that uh, the government we've got, and I'm a huge fan and supporter of the Prime Minister, is going to struggle to drive forward the changes we need. There'll be a chilling effect, a paralysing effect on ministers. I'm already, my, my phone is lit up by ministers now very concerned uh, that they could be accused of these things for behaviour that in most walks of life would be regarded as important managerial scrutiny. Um, and I think that must be wrong. In most walks of life would be considered normal managerial scrutiny. I think potentially he's living a little bit in the past, right? If you're in meetings and you're shouting at people and you're trying to humiliate them, and, you know, this report, which seems like it, you know, it doesn't seem like it was much of a whitewash. Actually, quite a lot of the report is saying Dominic Raab's a fairly hardworking guy who's a bit abrasive. But they do say that there were these moments um, where he was humiliating towards staff in meetings and they felt humiliated and they were right to, felt, to feel humiliated. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, that, that shouldn't really be the cut and thrust of, of the workplace. Um, obviously, Angela Rayner had a different take to Dominic Raab. Here she is speaking about his resignation. Well, unfortunately, in many workplaces up and down the United Kingdom, there is bullies in positions of power. And that's why we have strong trade unions and policies and procedures to support people. And what's important, especially if you're working in public office, is you have to be able to hold power to account and you have to be able to speak up. Our civil servants do the legwork for our government if there is wrongdoing or if there is a culture of bullying, that suppresses us being able to have good governance. And that's the wider issue here for me, is that Dominic Raab should never have been put in a position of leadership, in a significant, powerful position where he could bully staff who are trying to do their best by our country and support him in his role. Aaron, what's your take on this? Dominic Raab resigned, but he seems to be coming out fighting, doing interviews all over the place, writing comment pieces. He's saying... Yes, I'm resigning because I said I would if I got found guilty of bullying. Well, if, you know, if, if the bullying complaints got upheld, but um, this shouldn't be happening. Um, the fact that I was found to have bullied some staff just shows that people, um, uh, you know, the, the threshold is now too low for bullying. And also this is going to completely uh, stop government being effective. Well, it's important to say that these complaints were be being made, I think, by around 24 people, Michael, converging around eight different episodes. So there's a lot of people, a lot, a lot of different episodes. It's not just one or two people. There's clearly a pattern here. One person claimed to have felt um, suicidal. Uh, one person said they would close to, or even said they would vomit prior to a meeting with, um, with Rob. So the very serious claims... I would push back a little bit on what Angela Rayner said there, however, this idea that, you know, he should never have been there in the first place. It seems quite sort of vacuous politicking from where I'm standing for two reasons. Firstly, everybody in politics, Labour included, they venerate this idea of Malcolm Tucker from the thick of it, right? You've got people like Alastair Campbell being a mental health champion. Uh, at the same time, he was the template for somebody like Malcolm Tucker, whose whole raison d'etre is bullying, right? Bullying. It was an open joke. It was an open joke. So I, I find it a bit insincere and strange that you have Westminster politicians saying this is appalling, it's completely unacceptable, and yet they know how it operates. I mean, the whole nature, for instance, of a chief whip 
um, and how they maintain discipline in the party is, is I think, itself completely uh, rotten, corrupted, outrageous, antiquated, shouldn't carry on anymore. Speaking of which, Labour's uh, chief whip, Nick Brown, was uh, put on hold, was, you know, suspended, I believe, for allegations of bullying in September 2022, and we've still not heard anything about him. So this idea that Labour somehow has a sort of more morally uh, pure position on bullying or workplace bullying than the Conservatives does, or do rather, doesn't really hold water for me. Secondly, I think you have to have a very high threshold to be able to remove elected politicians from office on the basis of claims by civil servants. Now, I know people watching this might disagree. They might be thinking, Aaron, being contrarian. Imagine there's a socialist Labour government, implausible right now, I know. They go into power and you have ministers who are trying to execute the will of the people, which is a program which got them into power after a general election. They want to bring a bunch of things into public ownership. They want to drive through an agenda which is going to help working people in this country. Now, you can foresee a certain set of circumstances where various civil servants might not like that. They might not like those individuals. They might just sort of be prone to inertia and not doing anything. I'm not suggesting that's what civil servants would do, but you, you can see how that situation plays out. And you can see why socialists and people who would be supportive of that agenda would have significant problems with the idea that an elected politician carrying out, quote unquote, the will of the people, which should be taken seriously as an idea, they would have severe and I think legitimate problems with that person being defenestrated on the basis of claims in the workplace. However, however, yes, we need a high threshold for these, but I also think in the case of Dominic Raab, that threshold has been met. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the report doesn't read like a whitewash. It reads like someone who's sort of taken Dominic Raab's side of the story very seriously, but found that he has behaved in an unacceptable way on more than one occasion, right? So it, it, I, I think, yeah, it does seem like a threshold has been met. And he doesn't seem like, you know, from everything I've heard, he doesn't seem like a particularly pleasant person. And also this idea that you are sort of, it, it, he's making it seem as if this was a conspiracy by the trade union. You know, the, the, tra the trade unions were trying to get rid of me all part of the job of a trade union is if you've got a bullying boss to give people the confidence to put complaints in, right? So so if there was some coordination, that doesn't delegitimize the process because the whole point of a trade union is you say, look, if you want to make this complaint, you don't have to do it on your own. Because obviously going forward and making a complaint, you're, you're worried that you're putting yourself out there and you could experience some sort of negative consequence. If they sort of isolate you, they say, oh, it's just this, it's just this snowflake employee, actually, they were terrible, they were not good at their job. And that's why they're getting upset, right? If lots of people put forward their complaints at the same time, then it's harder to do that. And it's precisely the job of a trade union to make it easier for employees who have been treated badly to put forward those complaints. So th this idea that he's also saying, oh, this was all the trade unions who was sort of organizing against me, like, yes, that's because you're the boss of some workers, and you've treated them badly, or, you've, or they feel like they've been badly treated, and they're well within their right to speak to their trade union and try and hold you to account. Right, so it's, that that's not actually a conspiracy. That's trade unions working how they should do, and that's actually you know as uh, the one thing I do agree with strongly with Angela Rainey there is she was talking about trade unions being the best defence people have against this kind of abuse in the workplace. So, um, all all power to the civil service union. <laughs> Let's go on. Dominic Raab may have released a self pitying resignation letter, but the Tory MP has never been a man who invites much sympathy. As a newly elected MP, he wrote that men were getting a, quote, raw deal and complained of, quote, feminist bigotry. 
And this was how he spoke about food bank users during the 2017 general election. Typical user of food bank is not someone that's languishing in poverty. It's someone who has a cash flow problem episodically. No, it's true. Well, that's what the, that, that is what the trust of trust data says. It's not what they say, and, John. It is. It is. What no, the, I go to food banks. Sorry, all the time no, 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 the trustle, no. The sorry, trust Victoria, can I finish the point? By you no, that. they wouldn't. Like, just to clarify, Dominic, you're, you're telling the country here in this program that the trustle trust who deal with uh, with with poverty. Uh, told you personally that the problem with food banks wasn't people who are on the breadline, but people who are having no. cash flow problems. No. I'm dying to hear from them when they hear that you've wait, said that. Can, can you just wait? That what they do is they keep data that they update quarterly and then annually on the reason okay. people are coming to okay. their food banks. And that is what I'm citing. Not my okay. experience of food banks. Well, go and read the data rather than shooting it off the... So he was saying, go look at the data. I'm right. You're just being a snowflake. Let's look at what the Trussell Trust um, said in response to that intervention from Dominic Raab. Trussell Trust data shows that the main reason for a food bank referral are delays and changes to benefit payments and low income issues that include people who are struggling with low pay or insecure forms of employment. It is our experience that people living in poverty are more likely to experience a sudden short term crisis where they are referred for emergency food whilst the underlying causes are addressed. For these people, food banks are a lifeline and the Trussell Trust is extremely grateful to the public for the generous donations of food, toiletries and finance that help food banks keep their doors open. So essentially what's happening in their statistics, I think it's about 25% of people are suffering from, you know, just extreme and permanent poverty. So they have to go use these food banks all the time. Then you've got 26% of people, that's why he's talking about the, the, the main group of people is people who've had their benefits cut. Um, they're already living in poverty. So the moment they have their benefits cut, they have to go and use a food bank. So it's not just a cash flow problem like you might imagine a middle class person having. This is people who are on very low wages and then the moment they get benefit sanctioned, um, which is a huge cause of sort of distress, poverty, um, extreme poverty, something that the government shouldn't be saying, oh, it's not a big problem, it's just people getting their benefits cut. No, massive problem. Um, those statements about food bank users and feminists wouldn't halt Dominic Raab's advances through government, though. In 2018, Theresa May made Raab her Brexit secretary. And in 2019, Boris Johnson made him deputy prime minister and foreign secretary. And it was in that latter role that Raab made perhaps the biggest mistake of his career. That was because when Afghanistan was falling to the Taliban and Kabul was being evacuated, he stayed on holiday. This was how he defended that decision. But in terms of the, the conversation that you had with the Prime Minister, had you been ordered to come back to the United Kingdom, to, to be at your desk for the fall of, of, of Kabul, did you lobby the Prime Minister to be to work remotely? All, all, all of those claims and suggestions are, 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 are Which not true. Well, we discussed the matter. I agreed to come back uh, on Sunday. I'm not going to add further uh, to the speculation around that. But the idea, uh, some of the reporting, some of the assertions you just put to me, just not true. But we were focused overwhelmingly on securing the airport, making sure, and I was engaged in meetings, the, the, the stuff about me being lounging around on the beach all day, just nonsense. Uh, the, the stuff about me paddleboarding, nonsense. The sea was actually closed. It was a, a red notice. So sadly, while the sea was closed for Raab, an escape route had been closed for the thousands of Afghans who had helped the British during their occupation. That decision led to Raab's demotion to Justice Secretary, a position which he would regain under Rishi Sunak. But despite being a key ally, history would catch up with Dominic Raab. Just this week, anti-Brexit campaigner Gina Miller told this anecdote on Talk TV. 
things. I've had personal experience where he was a bully to me, but this is in, about, in what way? In so I was um, doing a, a morning a t today program about um, the case that I brought, my first case, and in coming down from the show, in the lift, he basically called me names. Um, like what? Like, um, uh, it can't work out if you're just a silly bitch or oh. um, if you are really? rich or if you've got, or you're just naive. He called you a silly bitch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or if I was naive. Dominic Rod wow. called you a silly bitch? Yeah. Wow. Um, Aaron, what's Dominic Raab going to be remembered for? Cool, that's a good question, Michael. Uh, I think in the long term, people are going to look at the authors of that book, Britannia Unchained. Uh, people like, uh, obviously, Liz Truss, Quasi Kwarteng, Dominic Ra, Priti Patel, as failures fundamentally, um, as, as part of a, a wider project within the Conservative Party, which failed, uh, both economically and culturally. Now, obviously, he's, he's not had a brief in cabinet, which is economic, but they were rising young guns within the Conservative Party in the early 2010s. And um, I think history is going to judge them very, very poorly. Uh, moving on. Extinction Rebellion, along with a number of other groups, have mounted the first four days of action in central London. It's all part of a protest they are calling, quote, the big one, and follows their move away from disruptive and illegal direct action. Protesters have today been holding pickets outside various government departments and listening to speeches on College Green opposite the Houses of Parliament. The new softer tactic is a bid to make the events more inclusive, encouraging people to take action against climate change without risking jail time. Now, that risk of jail time is one we had another reminder of today when two members of Just Stop Oil were sentenced to more than two and a half years each in prison. Morgan Troland and Marcus Decker scaled the Dartford Bridge using ropes and other climbing equipment. The action caused the police to close the bridge for over 40 hours. The sentencing judge said, quote, you have to be punished for the chaos you caused and deter others from copying you. To discuss today's events in central London, I'm joined now by Alana Byrne from Extinction Rebellion. Um, Alana, thank you for joining us today. Uh, first of all, the basics, why, why is today's event called the big one? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, first and foremost. And also, I'm really glad you you mentioned Morgan and Marcus. It's like, obviously, devastating news for us hearing <laughs> uh, hearing about that today. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've called it the big one because, like, the, the intention was to, you know, build, bring as many people to Parliament as possible for this weekend. Um, we've obviously, as you mentioned, you know, we've, we've sort of changed our strategy a bit this year where we announced in in the new year that we would stop, um, you know, pissing people off as it were, and like disrupting people, like getting in the way and um, that we would instead um, prioritize attendance over arrest as it were, and and um, do the sort of deep work of, of building community and relationships with other organizations. Um, you know, that's like, you know, that we, and, the, and it's really succeeded, right? We've, we've got over 200 organizations involved in this, um, including, you know, uh, uh, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. We've also got a PCS union and nature organizations and, uh, global, you know, climate justice organizations as well. Um, and, you know, this is, this is such an important part of the work. We've always believed at XR that 
a mass movement um, that becomes impossible for the government to ignore is like the key to change. So um, we're really excited about this weekend and, and what potentially comes after this. And I suppose, I mean, is it a bit of an experiment going more soft or having a sort of more soft attitude, a more soft outlook? And also, I mean, what, what are you counting as success here? So say we get to mid next week and you've had your weekend of action in central London, but no one in the media has sort of taken much interest. They're saying, oh, this is, you know, there's nothing controversial here to say. The reason this gets on talk radio and um, talk TV and all of these shows normally is because they want to have this huge debate about whether or not it's okay to block a road or whether or not it's okay to throw some paint on a snooker table. If it turns out that after all of this organization, the media aren't bothered because it's not controversial enough, will that cause you to change your, your tactics or is that just not what you're looking for now? I mean, like, first first and foremost, like, we've had so much attention, actually. Like, we've had the, the most amount that we've had in quite a long time in XR. So, I mean, even I've been, like, quite amazed at how, you know, much media attention we've sort of been getting already. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, it is a bit of an experiment. Like, look, you know, um, I personally, and I know you know, the majority of XR, like we we know that um, disruptive civil disobedience has shifted the dial on on climate awareness and and um, we believe in it wholeheartedly. Um, but, you know, <laughs> we're constantly told time and time again that um, we're not bringing people with us, um, you know, that people believe in our cause, but not in our tactics. And, so we've, I guess we've sort of thrown a bit of a gauntlet um, down this year to say, okay, fine, like we'll, we'll change, we'll shift stuff around a little bit. We won't um, get in the way. Um, and, but we, you know, we need everybody to just show up. You know, you don't, you don't have to come down and chain yourself to parliament or glue yourself to a road, but like um, we need you to be there. And, you know, it just, just to be clear, like we know that, um, you know, eight out of 10 people in the UK, the polling shows are deeply, deeply concerned about the climate crisis, but like the climate um, movement, I guess, isn't necessarily growing exponentially, you know? So what? where are those people and why aren't they coming? Um, so I think we've just, we've said to ourselves, like, we just, we'll try this for a little while, you know, we'll be as accessible as possible and see if we can bring out the numbers and also build community with these other groups right that's such an important part of this um so i think like uh, yeah i think things could change following this weekend um what we've said is like we've made demands to the government uh we've said you know we want we like what we're calling for is a is an immediate end um to fossil fuel licensing um and we we want the transition away from 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 fossil fuels to be led by citizens, via citizens assemblies. You know, we need to bring the public with us on this because the, the change is going to be so dr dramatic. Um, but let's face it, the government like is very unlikely to respond to these demands. Like I, I know that. And um, so I think come Monday, when we haven't heard from them, the, the idea is that we are deliberating across this weekend with these other groups to say, right, how do we step up our plans? And we intend to go away and, um, you know, discuss how we how we potentially escalate this and build um, more, um, 
you know, I'm not saying we're necessarily going to go back to major public disruption with all, I can't speak for those organizations, but we definitely intend to, to, to ramp things up following the weekend. And let's talk a bit more about your objective. So you've mentioned there the demand, which I think is part of this weekend's sort of protest to say no new oil exploration um, in the UK. Very reasonable. I think people are now, you know, going to be quite sympathetic towards that. Obviously, Just Stop Oil have a similar message. I mean, what's the broader vision when it comes to sort of how climate change should be tackled? I mean, because there's there's lots of areas where it's going to be harder than, say, moving away from oil and going for electric cars, things such as concrete and steel. Sort of what what's the big extinction rebellion vision of how we decarbonize quicker than currently are in government plans? You know, extinction rebellion has never claimed to have all the answers. And um, we certainly don't know exactly what needs to, to, to happen. But we also know that politicians don't have a clue. Like, I mean, it's so blatantly obvious now what's happening you know, not just with climate, but but generally with the crisis within society, with striking workers, you know, and um, and and et cetera, et cetera. Like the this government doesn't have any plan to to get us out of the mess we're in. Um, so what what we really believe in is that you know ordinary people like all of us, we're way ahead of politicians on what you know needs to happen. So um, a citizens assembly, you know, is selected like a jury. It, it represents the diversity of the country. It brings people together to, you know, and, and they're, you know, they're given expert knowledge and information about the climate crisis. And we decide as the general public what needs to happen and how we transition away from fossil fuels. That for me is hugely visionary because we need to, you know, we are we're living in a divided time. We're living in a divided society, and people need to come together. When people sit around a table, it does, you know, despite having completely different opinions on various things, they can find common ground when they do that. So, honestly, I believe, um, you know, citizen-led mechanisms and deliberative democracy is the best chance that we have. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting idea. The idea, I, sp- I suppose you could say, once you move it away from party politics, it's going to be easier to actually make difficult decisions because none of the political parties really want to come forward and say, we're going to make it more expensive to fly, for example, but maybe a citizens' assembly would come to a decision such as that. Um, let, I suppose I want to know just a bit more about your sort of analysis of UK government policy because what I think lots of people respond to Extinction Rebellion now at the moment, or you know, people who are a bit more enlightened than the people who just say, who cares about climate change? It's all China's fault. Are people who say, look, you're not actually taking on board some of the progress that the government has made and maybe we are moving in in a better direction than is made out um, i was just looking it up today emissions in the uk are down 49 percent on 1990 levels now obviously the, the the scale of the emergency we're seeing um we need to get down to zero as soon as possible i'm not questioning that in any way but i suppose i, I want to know your sort of broader analysis of, of of UK government policy and our record on climate and and where you think the biggest failings are, what people should be focusing on, as well as sort of new oil exploration? I actually think, you know, the government is is working in, it's moving in the opposite direction in terms of, you know, um, oil exploration in the North Sea and coal mines in the North. Um, so actually, you know, I, I don't, believe that they're doing what needs to happen. We know the IPCC is clear, right? The IPCC report is clear. 
that oil and gas exploration, it has to end and it has to end now. That's like the most clear part of that, um, that, that, uh, th those papers, you know, it's like, um, the, like before, before we start making things better, we have to stop the harm and stop the problem. And that is number one is to stop drilling for, for oil and gas. So the, the, and the government is ignoring, is ignoring that. And, and so are governments globally. So, so yeah, I, first and foremost, that's, that's, that's it really for me. Anyone who's watching this and thinking, I want to get involved in the big one. And what do they do? They just go down to central London this weekend. Look, yeah. And, you know, I was just going to say like loads of your listeners, I'm sure like, um, I'm, many I'm sure live in London and, and, and it just, just come down. Like, even if you've never been to an exile protest before, like you don't necessarily see yourself, um, as an exile protester, like this isn't just about XR anymore. Like there's so many organizations involved in this fight and just come down and chat to people like you'll, you'll enjoy it. And yeah, so you're all welcome. Uh, Alana Byrne, thank you so much for your time and for joining us this evening. We really do appreciate it. Uh, let's go to our next section. This was the moment Elon Musk's Starship rocket had its first launch. Now that looked impressive. You could hear everyone in the launch control room sounding incredibly excited. But after around four minutes, the rocket exploded. Take a look. Obviously, this is, uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation. Yeah, it does appear to be spinning, but I do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake. So immediately after that explosion, lots of commentators on Twitter suggested this was another fail from Elon Musk. He's lost his magic touch. He's ruining Twitter and now his rockets are exploding. But there's a counter narrative to that story. So Reuters reported this SpaceX rocket explosion illustrates Elon Musk's successful failure formula. And they go on to report this. Um, SpaceX executives, including Musk, the founder, CEO, and chief engineer at the California-based rocket company, hailed the test flight for achieving the major objective of getting the vehicle off the ground while providing a wealth of data that will advance Starship's development. This is a classical SpaceX successful failure, said Garrett Reisman, an astronautical engineering professor at the University of Southern California, who is a former NASA astronaut and is also a senior advisor to SpaceX. Reisman called the Starship test flight a hallmark of a SpaceX strategy that sets Musk's company apart from traditional aerospace companies and even NASA by this embracing of failure when the consequences of failure are low. He says, even though that rocket costs a lot of money, what really costs a lot of money are people's salaries, Reisman told Reuters in an interview hours after Thursday's launch. Um, Reisman said SpaceX saves more money in the long run 
and takes less time to identify and correct engineering flaws by taking more risks in the development process rather than keeping a large team working for years and years trying to get it perfect before you even try it. I would say the timeline for transporting people aboard Starship is accelerated right now compared to what it was a couple of hours ago. And so that's all from Reisman, this former astronaut, academic and advisor to um, SpaceX. And Reuters also spoke to Tanya Harrison, a fellow at the University of British Columbia's Outer Space Institute. Um, she explained why Starship is significant, why we care about this rocket. So she said, this is the biggest rocket that humanity has tried to build, um, adding that it is designed to carry orders of magnitude, more cargo and people to and from deep space than any existing spacecraft whereas NASA is working on a mission to retrieve samples of Martian soil and minerals measured in kilograms being collected by the Mars Perseverance rover, Starship will carry back many tons of rock, as well as transport dozens of astronauts and entire lab facilities to and from the Moon and Mars. Um, Aaron, can an exploding rocket really be a good thing, or is this just cope from Elon Musk fans? Well, I hate to upset people who, you know, uh, enjoy Elon Musk's very public failures, which is absolutely happening right now with Twitter and the, you know, the abolition of the blue tick. But this is incredibly common. Uh, SpaceX, obviously, as a company, is around 20 years old. Important to say that the very first rocket that the company built and the first stage booster rocket, which is what blew up, their original one was called the Falcon. And uh, they had, I think, three failures before they had a Falcon successfully uh, go above what's called, uh, there's a certain level, basically, when you're, you're in space, I've forgotten the name of it now, there's something, the Kármán line, K-A-R-M-A-N, above the Kármán line, and then you know, basically out of, uh, out of the Earth's kind of, um, not out of its orbit, but it was a rocket that went into space, first stage rocket. They did that the fourth time of asking. And actually, that was when the company obviously was quite small, untested. It was the first time a private company had sent a, a first stage booster rocket into space. The first time that happened with a, a vehicle like a first stage booster rocket, although it wasn't called that at the time, was a successful launch of a V2 by the Third Reich, I think in 1943, 1944. Uh, obviously, you then get the US and the, the, the Soviet space programs, which did something similar. But the first thing that a private firm did this was at the fourth attempt by SpaceX. There was lots of failure before that success. Then more recently, that thing perched on top of the rocket, the first stage booster rocket, Michael, the Starship, that's the thing that will go fly, flying around you know, our solar system, apparently. There were also multiple attempts at trying to get that off without a booster, and to then uh, autopilot and land successfully. I think there were four failed attempts over several years before they got that right. So SpaceX and the timeline of its accomplishments, which are multiple, first private company to send a, a first stage booster into space, first private company to put a satellite into space, first company, first space transport provider to use re reusable first stage rockets and now uh, with Starship uh, second stage vehicles too, lots of firsts there. But amongst all those accomplishments are what would be viewed as a litany of failures. So if people think that this thing blowing up now proves that SpaceX is on the decline, um, I, I hate to be the bearer of uh, bad news, but that's simply not the case. There was a funding round earlier this year for SpaceX, which it should be said is, is a private company still. It's not like Tesla. Um, 
And that funding round, this isn't necessarily an accurate way to work out how much a company is worth, but that funding round valued uh, SpaceX, I think, something like $170 billion, obviously replete with NASA contracts, putting satellites into space for all kinds of private companies and nation states, from, yes, the United States to, I think, maybe even the UAE have, have contracts with them too. They're bringing in billions of dollars a year. I think this explosion costs them around $3 billion. So clearly, you don't want to make a habit. You don't want to make a habit of building a rocket bigger than the Saturn V, the most powerful vehicle we've ever built. This is bigger than that, and it took off successfully. That is an accomplishment. Um, but you don't want to be building something of that size and failing four, five, six times. I think they're probably pricing in two, three, four failures for maximum. Uh, but this was inevitable. The idea that it would have been a, a, a success first time would have been really unprecedented in the history of SpaceX. But what I don't understand, having said all of that, Michael, is the fact that there was a Starship on top of the first stage booster. Why not just test the first stage booster by itself, save some money? So maybe they were confident this would clear the hurdle at the first time of asking. But in any case, like I say, over the last 20 years in the history of SpaceX, this is all very normal. And I suppose another response people might have, and I always I save these space stories for when uh, when it's Friday and I've got you, Aaron, because obviously this happened yesterday morning, but I thought you'd have a lot more to say than even me or Ash would. Um, if, if someone is watching this and thinking, okay, so fair enough, this rocket exploded, but this is all part of the development of rockets. And, you know, th th this doesn't mean this is a, a lost hope. This huge rocket, which is bigger than any anyone has put into space before, um, maybe it will ultimately be a success. Why should we care? Because I suppose one thing people look at this and say, look, we've got a cost of living crisis. We're facing existential threats when it comes to climate change. Why do we care if this very big rocket, which can take tons of rocks into or away from space, I suppose you probably want to take them from space instead of sending them up there. Who really knows? This is my question for you. Why should our audience care that this very big rocket is potentially closer to being able to carry big payloads into space? Well, I don't think your audience should have any sort of vested interest in the success of SpaceX. Uh, I, th I think that's by the by. I don't think they should have any vested interest in the idea that a private company will benefit from the exploration of space. However, the idea that space itself um, is somehow distinct from the things that we all care about is, is kind of misplaced. So for instance, you know, without satellite technologies, we don't have mobile phones, we don't have GPS. Um, without uh, satellites, we can't monitor real-time changes in our climate systems, right? We can't, we literally can't monitor things like uh, global concentrations of CO2, uh, movements in surface area with regards to rising uh, sea levels, et cetera, in places like um, the Arctic or, or, or Greenland. So space is, is really critical. If you care about climate change, you know, you just have to accept that we need satellites to be able to monitor these things and, and have the ability to measure and manage um, how we mitigate uh, addressing the climate crisis. So this idea that oh, we need to feed people and house them and create public transport and, and schools and hospitals, of course, you would also need satellites unless you want to get rid of GPS and, and monitoring climate change. Now, going on to SpaceX and its mission, I think it's obviously a tragedy that these technologies and the potential prosperity and abundance they open up is being captured by a corporate elite. That's not a mistake, by the way, or an accident. I talk about that in my book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. Um, until relatively recently, actually, there was an agreement, it was a Cold War agreement, which said that resources and assets beyond our planet's atmosphere should really be the, the common inheritance of humanity. They shouldn't be subject to um, a profit and private gain. 
I think in the next 20, 30 years, that's sadly going to come apart because, of course, we live in a capitalist system and innovations and changes, which could redound to the benefit of everybody, redound instead to uh, those who own capital, i.e. capitalists. So, for instance, I think in the medium term, before you talk about colonizing Mars or whatnot, I think a moon base is probably quite likely. Now, why would that matter? Why would a capitalist want to do that? Well, on the moon, we have ice. What's ice? It's water. What can you do with large concentrations of water? You can make more gas, basically. You can make a form of synthetic gas by splitting water into hydrogen, oxygen, mixing the oxygen with uh, carbon dioxide, which you take with you. You can make a, something similar to a methane, a propellant. So all of a sudden, once you can get to the moon and you can stay there, you can start to build something which resembles a gas station. Why does that matter? Well, because the gravity... The gravitational pull of the moon is one third of what the Earth's is. So to get rockets off the moon is much easier than our planet. And then, of course, they're looking at asteroids further afield. Why would you want to do that as a capitalist? Well, asteroids also have ice, uh, which can be turned into water and then into propellant, which gives you more gas stations. But as well as that, asteroids also are basically, generally speaking, <clears throat> huge chunks of, of, of metal. Um, and out there in our solar system are trillions and trillions and trillions of tons of all kinds of metals, including platinum and gold, far more than we have on our own planet. And in an ideal world, you know, if we were a highly um, advanced multi-planetary civilization, as Elon Musk loves to talk about, you, you could see a situation whereby we wouldn't be able to, or we wouldn't, be able, we wouldn't allow, we wouldn't permit rather, mining of metals and precious resources on our home planet. And that all happened out in the solar system on asteroids. And that would be done in a way which is fair, socially just, and with the dividend of that redounding to the benefit of the many, not the few. That's clearly not how capitalism works. Now, this all sounds quite strange and far-fetched. I think there's a timeline for this, like I say, 20, 30 years, and I talk about that in my book. Uh, I suppose my one fear, Aaron, I want to put to you, is this the super billionaires trying to you know, generate interplanetary lifestyles so they can sort of say to hell with Earth um, if climate change makes it uninhabitable? I can take me and my favorite 100 people to Mars. Uh, no, I wouldn't go that far, Michael, because however bad our planet gets, Mars isn't great. I think, you know, Venus, maybe somebody in our comments can respond, but Venus, which is, as a planet, because of its size and its mass, obviously has a similar sort of gravitational pull to our planet, which is what we're evolutionarily adapted to. I think Venus has a surface temperature of several hundred degrees C, so you wouldn't want to live there. It's also gas. Uh, Mars... A bit more hospitable, but it's uh, one third, third the size of Earth, so you, you might have some problems walking around. It wouldn't be particularly pleasant. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? At the same time that we're destroying our own planet with regards to runaway climate change, we have ultra-wealthy people looking to terraform other planets. Let's start with our own one. However, I have a, I have a theory about this, Michael, I think. You know, I'm a Marxist. I try and think dialectically, which is that once humans do begin to live in colonies, let's say on the moon, the Mars, Mars or asteroids or whatever, they might be quite small, right? I'm not suggesting it's going to be a mass sci-fi style, millions of people living in cities, but just hundreds or thousands of people living in these kinds of places. I think once that happens, there will be almost a sort of a species-wide revelation that there is nowhere else we can live other than this planet and that we need to cherish it. Uh, this was touched on by William Shatner, actually. You know, he went on into space uh, with uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon Origin. Uh, uh, sort of rival to SpaceX. Interesting, the world's two wealthiest people have 
probably owned space companies. Probably tells you about their intentions, which are profit. Um, and he went up there and, 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 and he, uh, he, he, he wrote this all, well, he said it and it was then reported in an interview. I tweeted the clip um, of it. You know, for him, it was a recognition that we have a marvelous home planet, gives us everything we need. We're never going to have another home planet. That's something I think for sure. Um, and we're destroying it. So I think that, you know, once people begin to live on places that aren't planet Earth, maybe that will paradoxically give us a greater appreciation of Earth. I'd like to think so. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so we're going to get out to space and think, well, we've, we've put all of this investment into getting to Mars, but you know what? It still sucks compared to Earth, so maybe we should try and look after it. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't think, well, how, however technologically advanced we become anywhere is going to be nicer to hang out. than uh, even, if, even if they manage to make life on Mars possible, I don't want to go there. It seems much more pleasant here. Let's go to our final story. Prepare yourselves emotionally for 3 p.m. this Sunday when every mobile phone in Britain will sound an emergency alarm. The alarm will make a siren-type sound for 10 seconds or vibrate. It's unclear to me which one will happen to every phone. Um, and it is a practice run for what the government says is a vital tool to keep the public safe in life-threatening emergencies. Um, not everyone is pleased. This was a Daily Mail front page this week. So they say, so what genius thought it was a good idea to terrify the whole country at 3pm on Sunday? They're furious about this plan. Um, also furious is Jacob Rees-Mogg. This was his monologue on GB News. Cry God for Harry, England and St George. His Majesty's government has decided our telephones will screech us on St George's Day as a test warning. I'm afraid to say I've disabled my government warning system because I think that it will end up being used in the way the Met Office gives us warning to tell us the blindingly obvious. That is to say that the weather's going to be hot and perhaps we should have a glass of water. Or there may be a storm and it may not be wise to go out or it may be cold and we should wrap up warmly. I don't think that that is why we have telephones. I think we have them as a service that we want to use, that we pay for to communicate with people, not to be shouted at by the government, that it's maybe trivial. And if there's something that has happened that is serious, won't we actually know anyway? Those of you who watch GB News will undoubtedly know because you'll have heard it on the news. But if something is building up to a great disaster, are we to assume that people are so stupid that they haven't paid any attention to what's been going on? And this seems to me a mistaken role for the state to be taking. It is back to the nanny state, warning us, telling us, mollycoddling us, when instead they should just let people get on with their lives and make sensible decisions for themselves. I mean, it's hard to make a sensible decision for yourself if you don't know what's about to happen, right? So if you're not watching GB News or live television, listening to the radio, and that there is a hurricane coming, I quite want to know about it, right? The point is also that it can tell you at any time. So if it's going to happen in half an hour, maybe you want to do something about it. I don't know. Um, it has gone wrong, though. Let's look at some instances where these tests have gone wrong. So just this week in Florida, an emergency alert was sent to everyone at 4.45 a.m. Um, that came with an alarm sound. Um, and it said, this test, this is just a test of the emergency alert system. No action is required. So not a particularly scary one, um, but people were pretty annoyed um, to get that so early in the morning. Um, the BBC reported 
this about that. Florida Division of Emergency Management later admitted that a 4.45 wake-up call isn't ideal. The agency said each month it tests the alerts on a variety of platforms, and this alert was supposed to be on TV and to not disturb anyone already sleeping. On Twitter, it vowed that it was taking the appropriate action to ensure this will never happen again, and that only true emergencies are sent as alerts in the middle of the night. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said the alert was a completely inappropriate use of the system. Um, the BBC also reported these details about residents. They said angry Floridians took to social media to complain about being woken up before dawn with one writing on Twitter, I need to fight whoever decided to test Florida's emergency alert system. And then people shared tips on how to turn the notifications off on their phones. Um, the emergency management agency urged residents not to do this. So this probably backfired. Their testing system actually encouraged a lot of people to delete the testing system from their phone. However, not as dramatic as this, which is without doubt the worst example of an emergency alert going wrong. It was in 2018 in Hawaii. There early on a Saturday morning, the state government sent every phone on the island this message. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. So a pretty scary message. This is an NBC report from The Times showing what happened next. Just after 8 a.m. in Hawaii, pandemonium in paradise. Hysteria triggered by a false alarm. The terrifying message screamed across cell phones throughout the state. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. We've seen people starting to run. The hotel staff came and told my parents, seek shelter, you only have 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. It took 38 minutes for a correction to be texted out, twice the time it would take for a missile to reach Hawaii from North Korea, and more than enough time to terrify people across the state. Governor David Ige took responsibility. Today is a day that most of us will never forget, and many in our community was deeply affected by this, and I'm sorry. An apology from officials here for a system designed to save lives, instead turning them upside down. That's such an amazing story. So it took them 38 minutes to tell them that there wasn't actually a missile coming and that they needed to take shelter. 38 minutes. Apparently, you know, it's, it took 12, it would have taken 12 minutes to come there. So you could have been hiding in place for, for ages. Um, Aaron, how concerned are you about the government having the ability to uh, alert us all, which they will demonstrate at 3 p.m. this Sunday? Uh, I'm not that worried, Michael. I, I, I quite like Jacob Rees-Mogg talking about his hatred of the nanny state. Bear in mind, this is somebody who was literally raised by a nanny. <laughs> he has six children. They have a nanny. I hate the nanny state, but I don't mind having a nanny at home doing all the, the work of raising the children. Bit strange. Um, is it a nanny state to be able to warn millions of people about an impending disaster in, in, in real time? I think it's probably quite important if there was a Asteroid heading our way, it probably wouldn't matter as well as an asteroid or uh, act of war, a nuclear weapon. I mean, you, you, you probably would want to be indoors if there was a, a nuclear weapon dropped within a couple of miles of where you live. So I, I think he's just, I think it's just being frivolous and silly, really, isn't it? I mean, what's the, what's the downside, really? What's the downside? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be skeptical of the state when it comes to some things, but being warned about an impending disaster through mobile phones, which despite what Mr. Rog, Mr. Mogg seems to think, Mr. Reese Mogg rather, the right honourable Reese Mogg seems to think, that, that is the medium by which you can contact basically everybody 
in real time, almost immediately. Not everybody is watching the news at the exact same time. I think, you know, GB News and Sky and BBC News, in terms of their 24-hour rolling news channels, I mean, you're looking at tens of thousands of people watching them at any one time. So, no, uh, mobile phones is a very sw- smart way of doing it. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly fussed, Michael. I think it's probably a sensible thing to do. But look, politicians and the media rail against sensible things all the time. That's the world we now live in. It does um, really demonstrate the concept creep that we've got with nanny state. Because the idea of a nanny state, is you say, the, the state is going beyond its essential functions, you know, mm. which is to to look after us when we're sick, to to make sure that no one falls into complete destitution, to maintain law and order. And the nanny state is when they've gone beyond those, when they're telling you what to eat and what to drink and, um, you know, what you should be able to watch on television, you know, really, really going beyond the basic functions of a state. But telling people if a hurricane is coming or if we're all being bombed, you know, they might sound implausible. I don't think they're going to use this emergency system very often. That to me is probably a basic function of the state, right? It's not, mm. it's not really telling us how to live our lives to, to just have the capacity to tell us if there is an emergency that's about to happen in half an hour's time. Yeah, I mean, if you look at sort of political philosophy, people on the sort of libertarian right, which, you know, Jacob rees identifies with in many ways, they would say that somebody like Robert Notzik, who wrote a, a book called Anarchy State Utopia, libertarian right-wing thinker, they would say that the state shouldn't really provide very much except for courts, police. So basically have a state apparatus to uh, uphold the rule of law so that individuals can privately engage in market transactions, uphold contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even in that anarchist libertarian utopia, you probably would have this, right, Michael? There's such an important point you just made there. Even if the state didn't provide healthcare, housing, transport, education, yeah, you probably would have an alert service for natural disasters or an act of war. Sorry, Jacob. I think you've got this one really badly wrong. <laughs> I like your point that this is someone who is no stranger to nannies. Um, Aaron, it's been a pleasure, as it always is, on a Friday evening with you. Um, before we go, we've got an interview going out this Sunday on our channel, Downstream. Can you can you tell us something about it? We do. We have an interview with Matthew Goodwin, who's been going around in the media and places like The Sun, I, I believe he's on BBC Any Questions this evening, talking about his idea of, of the new elite. Um, I won't give too much away, but it's rather different to the elite that you and I might have in mind or many of our viewers. When you hear the word elite, you think CEOs, billionaires, the 1%, the corporate class. Mr. Goodwin instead, his uh, graduate students who are working in Starbucks or nurses with 54,000 pounds debt. That apparently is the new elite. Obviously, we disagreed on a great deal, but I think it's a real importance to unpick some of these ideas coming out on the right and to challenge them fundamentally. So uh, I think our audience will really enjoy it. This show will be back on Monday, same time, 6pm. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.